Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now to prepare us, uh, as I just said, not, not just for the new year, but honestly, for the rest of our lives. This morning, I'm going to share on a subject matter that uh, I feel is vitally important, yet sadly is very much neglected, I believe. As Paul began this letter in chapter 1, he gave to Timothy what would seem to be his number one priority, and that, of course, like many books actually, was to challenge the false teachers. Uh, so many books of the New Testament deal with false teachers, just like we do today. False teachers are everywhere in the world, even today. But as we look back, and just real briefly, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul said to Timothy, As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, he said, I want you to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And so as you can see, Timothy was in a local church, right? We know that, by the way, as the church of Ephesus, which is where Paul had left him. Paul had felt called, as he says, to go to Macedonia, okay? So uh, while being left in Ephesus, Timothy was pretty much in charge. That's why these are called the pastoral epistles. He kind of, if you will, took over as the pastor there in Ephesus, and he was told to deal with the problems of any local church, at that time, but especially the false teaching. And so knowing that this church uh, does have some practical as well as some doctrinal issues it needs to deal with, Paul here in chapter 2 jumps right into something that he knows will have a direct positive impact on these people, something that ultimately is literally life-changing, and that is the subject of prayer, the subject of prayer. Is my view that no matter what church it is, no matter what century it is, or if you will, in today's culture, no matter what denomination it is, the church, even though it would never ever admit this, does not have a very high view of prayer. Oh, everybody will raise their hand when asked the question, right? It's no difference than I say, how many people think so-and-so, or this is, this is important, everybody's hands go up. Great, who's going to show up on Saturday? And you watch the hands go down. That's reality. It's sad, but it's reality. In my opinion, it's my opinion that most Christians don't think too much about prayer, and if they do, it's many times temporary because they've simply exhausted all other outlets. They use it as a last resort and once again, this is very sad, and it tells us the state of the church. And so Paul, who I believe feels the exact same way, he starts chapter 2 by exhorting Timothy, and therefore, by extension, the church, okay? He's, remember, prayer isn't just for Timothy. Prayer isn't just for pastors. Prayer is for all of us, Okay? So I believe this is extended to the church as well. But he, he's, he's, he's challenging us to spend time in prayer. As stated in Hebrews 
chapter 4, verse 16, we can boldly come before the throne of grace. And so Paul, already knowing this, is telling Timothy, let's take advantage of that. If we know that we can boldly become, come before the very throne of God, why aren't we doing this? I mean, how great of a resource this is. And so he says here in chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So Paul begins his focus here on prayer with the statement. Notice what he says. He says, I urge you then first of all. That's how he starts off. I urge you then first of all. Now it's important that we understand, um, it's important how we look at this section because there's a little more meaning to it than just when sometimes when you read things in the English. Uh, when Paul says first of all, he's not obviously talking about first in the sense of time as in first before second, okay? It's a statement of first importance, okay? When he says, first of all, it's a statement of first importance. He's saying prayer has that kind of value, okay? Prayer, he's saying, is extremely significant. It's first in importance. This is why he's connected it with our English word, urge. You see that? He says, I urge you. That word urge is the Greek word parakaleo, Okay, uh, Many of you have heard me use that word before. It simply means to call near. It means to come alongside. It's actually been used of the Holy Spirit. He's called the paraclete. He comes alongside of us, right? You see in our English translation, he's called a counselor. He's called a comforter. He's called the paracletos. He comes alongside of us. Okay, But here, it's being used to exhort someone to come near, to exhort Timothy, to exhort all of us to come near. Hence the word urge, I urge you. It's a sign of importance, okay? And so Paul is putting a huge emphasis on this, not just for Timothy, but others in the church to recognize that prayer is not just something of high value, because that it certainly is, but it's something that is essential, Okay? Yes, prayer is of high value, no question, and that, should be said, that, that in itself should say enough. But it is essential. Prayer is indispensable. And we don't see this as much in our English translations, but Paul is emphasizing here that the word prayer is obviously not just something we do at a meal. It's not like a fire extinguisher. Not a fire extinguisher, we use that term when it says, in case of an emergency. That's not how prayer is to be used. Prayer is, is to play a large role in the Christian life. Think about this. How can we as Christians literally use the term having a personal relationship with Christ? Right? We use that term. We've heard that term many times. How can we use that term and yet not be people of prayer? That makes no sense whatsoever. Having a relationship with someone requires two-way communication, does it not? It does. 
It requires two-way communication, them speaking to us and us speaking to them. As we know, God speaks to us in his word. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his word, we're told. Right? He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him in prayer. We can come before God and talk to him, pour our hearts to him. But there's no way we can have a relationship with God the way it should be if we don't pray. And obviously, if we're not in his word, we want to know what God has to say. I believe this is so important to Paul that the only reason that he does not command Timothy is because you really can't command people to pray. Right? We can phrase it in the form of a command. But as D. Edmund Hebert says, the practice of prayer cannot be forced by an outward command, but must be prompted of an inner conviction of its need. That can be, by the way, an appeal to our conscience. It could be a prompting of the Holy Spirit. But the Christian needs to yield to that. Okay? Well, let's look briefly here at the words that Paul has used here, starting in verse 1. Now, in the New Testament, just so you know, I believe there are seven words used for prayer in the New Testament. Here, he uses four of them, just right here in this one verse, okay? Now, they're all similar to a certain degree, yet they all have a special nuance that gives us just a little different concept of prayer, okay? So not only is prayer important, but what is included in that time of prayer is just as important significant. So here in verse 1, the first word, we are, we are urged, right? That's the word he uses, urged. We are urged to do is to have requests, okay? It's the word deesis in the Greek. The root word of deesis, it means to lack. It means to be without. It means to be deprived, Okay, therefore, I hope that makes sense to you. Therefore, the word request obviously comes from a sense of need, right? And of course, as a result, what do we do? We come before the throne of grace. We appeal to God for that need, that he would supply that need. Effective prayer is going to come from the understanding that, number one, there's a need, right? Right? There is a need. It's going to come from an understanding of that and that we are completely dependent on God. We're not going before anybody else. We're coming before God and we have an understanding that he alone can furnish that need. Number two, as James says in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Okay? When there is a need that only God can provide, talking to a friend, talking to a neighbor as, as some sort of a release is not something that's magically going to go away. It's not going to take something away. If you're praying to God as you're going through a difficulty, telling your friend isn't going to take that away, which God may not want to take it away anyway. God may say, I want you to go through this to cause growth, to cause sanctification, Right? What we need to do is to go before the Lord, go before him with an open heart. It doesn't mean you can't talk to your friend about things and, and, and discuss things. We should be able to do that as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But they're, they're not going to answer your prayer. We need, we have to go 
to Almighty God. The second aspect of prayer here in verse 1 is, well, <laughs> it's simply the word prayer, right? Now, unlike the word request, which depending on the context that you're looking at, the word request can be used of others and certainly it can be used of God, right? The context will determine that. But the word for prayer, folks, this is important, is only in reference to God. You understand that? The word prayer is only a reference to God. Prayer is simply talking. It is communicating with God. In its general meaning, it's a form of reverent address to God. So if anything, it's simply a reminder that, you know what? We need to spend time with God. Okay? What this does not mean and this is very important as well, is that you throw up some formula prayer, some memorized prayer every day. When I was a little kid, I still remember this. Uh, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food, amen. You know, it's one thing to teach your children, but if I hear you spit that out as an adult, I'm going to slap you upside the head, okay? Listen, we don't need to have formula prayers as adults, repeating the same words, as you know, if you're honest, they're just meaningless. It doesn't mean anything, right? You, you've heard, you ever heard of the Catholic response to prayer? It's meaningless. They just sit, I mean, I've watched it. I've been there. They've literally just kind of rattle it off because they, they, they know it. They know it verbatim. They don't even have to be paying attention to the person up front. They just throw it out there. It's meaningless, Prayer is not some blueprint that you simply quote. Prayer is a heartfelt connection with the living Lord of the universe. It's not a computer you just throw stuff up and somehow it spits something out. It's God. You speak to him from your heart, not from some memorized thing that you read somewhere or wrote somewhere. The third aspect of prayer that Paul wants us to understand is what he calls intercession. If you're reading the New American Standard, it will say petition. But it says intercession. Now, for those of us who teach, uh, no matter what Greek reference that you use, the English word intercession is a very loose rendering of the Greek word. Okay. It's actually only used twice uh, in Scripture. Both of those times are right here in 1 Timothy. But the Greek word literally means to fall in with something or someone. A, you may say it's a coming together with someone. Okay? Therefore, scholars are divided onto who this applies to. Does it apply to God or does it apply to man? Now, for those who feel it speaks more so of our coming together with God, they would say that the word speaks of that confidence, that confidence that we can come before God, that we can approach God. The fact that we actually have, as children of God, free access to him. Okay, As William Hendrickson comments, a person finds himself in the very audience chamber of God the Father. It's like having that, like, like a sacred interview, right, with God. That's how some people will look at that. 
On the other side, like many of the Bible translators, there are those who hold to the word intercession and they feel that the involvement, the coming together, as the word suggests, has to do with others. Okay? As the word intercession implies, which is probably how most of us use it, they say it speaks of an advocate to where there is sympathy, there is compassion, there is a personal attachment to somebody else, to someone else's life. The good news is that I believe both of these are correct. As Christian, as children of God, we know God wants to hear from us. We know that. He wants us to know that he has our attention. He wants us to know that we can come before him any time, and we can do it with absolute assurance. Okay? We're also told in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, in him and through him, or through faith in him, he says we may approach him with freedom and with confidence. Right? In Christ and through our faith in Christ, we can approach him with freedom and with confidence. But at the same time, God loves, folks. God loves when our focus is on other people. Do you know that? God loves when our focus is not selfish. It is on other people, what we would typically call intercession. The New Testament, by the way, is full of these kinds of examples. I'm just going to give you a handful. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, pray for those, you like this one, who persecute you. Luke 6, 28, pray for those who mistreat you. So it's not just even praying for others, praying for those who don't like you and you don't probably like them. And of course, we all have Jesus in John 17. Many of you know that. It's typically known as the high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus prays for the disciples. Jesus then prays for all believers, right? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul prays for those in the church of Colossae. Three chapters later, he asked that they would pray for him. We see, that we see this with the Thessalonians as well. And lastly, in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other. Obviously, don't just don't walk up to any Christian and throw your sin at them. Go to somebody you can trust, somebody who knows caring, someone who was faithful, someone who was godly. Probably someone of the, of the same sex would be more preferable. And maybe tell them what you're struggling with. Someone who's not going to blabber, who's not going to gossip. Somebody who will pray for you. And it'll be between you two and you two only. That's important. But we do pray for other people. A large part of our prayer life, folks, should be focused on the needs of others. Spend time with God and talk about someone outside of yourself. If there's a problem, folks, with Christians today, there's one of them. Pray for other people. Don't be so self-centered. That's not should never be the description of a believer in Christ. Oh yeah, he's a great guy. He's very self-centered. Really? 
That's just not right. You pray for others. It doesn't mean you can't pray for yourself, but you pray for others. The last aspect of prayer that's mentioned here in verse 1 is thanksgiving. This is something, once again, that I believe is truly missing in the prayers of believers. Thanksgiving. We have more to be thankful of than any people on the planet. Do you not realize that? We all agree, yep, yep, yep. But do you, once again, do you follow through with it? And of all that God has done for us, and of all that we have, all of the answers to prayers that he has already given, setting aside the, you know, the food on our tables, the roof over our heads, I mean, we can just go on and on and on. Do you think that God deserves our thanks? Everybody in here is going to say, of course. Then the question is, is it a part of your prayer life? Do you stop and give thanks to God on a daily basis? The Edmund Hebert's point, he says, thanksgiving is a complement to all true prayer. It is a complement to all true prayer. Where is our true heart if all we do is we come before God seeking more and more and more, but never acknowledge through thanksgiving and praise what he's already done? <laughs> Think about that for a second. We never just stop acknowledge what he's already done. Listen, folks, Paul's challenge to Timothy is really the same challenge to us to have all of these aspects as a part of prayer in our own lives, right? With, with uh, what goes on, not just in our lives, but as you know, in the lives of those around us. Plus, I mean, we all know, plus there's the need of salvation, Right? Friends and family. Everyone here has friends and family who are not saved. In addition to maybe the spiritual needs of someone, financial needs of somebody else, material needs of somebody else. And everything else that happens every single day in life. How can we continue without being in constant connection with the one that we owe our very lives And this is why Paul started in verse 1 by saying, first of all, right? Which means it is of utmost importance. This is why he urges Timothy. This is why he pleads with Timothy. This has to be taking place. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is not, I'm going to try this first, write this first, tell them this first. Oh, Man, nothing's working. Maybe I should pray. We've all probably done it, and it's loony for every one of us to do that. Remember, folks, there's a reason that Paul said in, in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer. That, that's a devotion. Have a devotion to pray, he says. Ephesians 6, he says, pray on all 
occasions. Not some, not just at church, not just before a meal. Pray on all occasions. Romans 12, 12, be faithful in prayer. It's not just once in a while. It's not just whenever I have a need and I want something from God. Be faithful in prayer. Lastly, we all know 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. As I stated in a previous sermon of quoting MacArthur, he said praying at all times or praying without ceasing is not necessarily limited to constant vocalizing of our prayers. Rather, it refers to a God consciousness that relates every experience in life to him. I jokingly say sometimes when we're going to pray in a group, right? Hey, why don't you start and why don't you, or why don't you dial and why don't you hang up? Like if we're at the phone call. But you know what? We don't really hang up. We should never hang up, right? We just say, I'll, I'll talk to you in a little bit. It may be before you leave the house. It may be while you're driving down the road. I spend a lot of time praying as I'm driving down the road. It may be when you see an accident. It's something really ugly. You may just get a text about something. Maybe, you know, it's, it's Dave and has COVID or whatever it may be. It, just, there's always, you can pray at any given time. You can be in front of your computer and just remember something. And then you can stop and pray. Any given time. Now with this in the forefront of our minds, let's move on. And who are these prayers for? Are we to pick and choose? Are we to have favorites? Are we to only pray for ourselves and maybe our closest friends? Well, we all know that's not true because I just read earlier in Matthew 5 and Luke 6 where he says, pray for those who persecute you. They're not your friends. Pray for those who mistreat you. Pray for those who mock you. Pray for those who call you names. Pray for the guy who broke into your car and stole your stereo. Pray for these people, right? Jesus in John 17, pray for all believers. This one is a no-brainer, folks. Paul says right here in verse 1, I urge you, therefore, first of all, this is that important, that request, that prayers, that intercession, thanksgiving be made for who? What does it say? All men, everyone, it says. Who's missing in that statement? Nobody. Nobody. Our life, our prayer life, is to be universal, isn't it? Think, think about it. Our prayer life is to be universal. Believers, pray for believers, pray for non-believers. Pray for those we don't necessarily like, like I mentioned before. Pray for those who don't like us. Pray for the guy who keys your car. He obviously needs prayer. Pray for your best friend. Pray for the ones you've never met. Pray for the ones you see every day. It's important. As I've said many times before, one of the best things that I did starting years ago is every time I see a prayer request come up on Facebook, I stop and pray. 
Now, that doesn't mean people throw prayer requests up constantly. They don't. But when somebody is asking for prayer, why wouldn't I stop and pray? I mean, think about it for a second. Why wouldn't any of us? Oh, yeah, man, I'll be praying for you. Sure. How many times do you never do that? I guarantee every single person in this room, if not every Christian in this city, has said, hey, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they need prayer. Oh, yeah, I'd be praying for them. And you never pray for them. Never. When somebody does that for me, if somebody has the ability to throw a prayer request up there, it's probably obviously something serious. So for me, I just stop and I pray for that person or whatever they ask me uh, uh, to pray for. It doesn't matter if I know their uncle or not. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if I haven't seen that person in years. There are many people on Facebook that are my friends from California. I have not even talked to them in over 20 years. But if they, if they put on there, Darren, sometimes they'll message me, Darren, will you pray for my brother, as one did recently? I will do that. Why would every, it's not just for me, why would any Christian not do that? Unless you're at work and you don't have a choice, why would you not stop and do it? We're all, we're all able to forget. We know that. Listen to Homer, Kemp, Homer Kent's perspective on this. He says, only Christians have a vital contact with God. Right? Only Christians have a vital contact with God. If this urging is carried out, no man will be left unprayed for. He says we cannot pray too widely. Or maybe you might want to say broadly. To prove this very point, notice who he mentions at the very beginning of verse 2. He says prayer should be made for everyone who? For kings and all those in authority. Now, folks, the fact that, that Timothy, like every single one of us here, are urged to pray for those people should tell us something. Okay, number one, that God's in control. He wants us to go before God on behalf of these people because God is sovereign. God is in control. God is on his own. We're not going to anybody else. We're not doing anything else. We're going before God. He wants us to understand it is him that we should go before. God is in control. That's why we come to him And then secondly, our prayers affect the decisions even in the highest offices in the land. I don't think think Paul is asking Timothy to pray for this just to make people feel good. Hey, I'm praying for you. It's not just for giggles. I think there is an effect of our prayer, right? Most Most of you know that verse from James, right? The fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and it's effective. All of us here today, there's not a person in this room right now, I know, that we all know we should be praying for our leaders. Everyone in this room. Especially if we don't like them. And we think they're, that they're taking us in the wrong direction. Why would we not pray for them? It's like the guy who keyed your car, the guy who stole your stereo. Why would you not pray for them? Well, because they're jerks. They're this and this. It's baloney. Great, they're jerks. They need to be prayed for. Ta da! <laughs> it's not that difficult to understand. We pray for those people. You don't have to answer this, but how many of you make it a habit of praying 
who your country's leaders. How many of you make a habit of praying for your country's leaders? I guarantee you, I know this because I've done it, I guarantee you we've griped about them. I guarantee you we've complained about them. I guarantee you we've repeated some of the stupid things they've said, and those are many, obviously. But how many of you pray for them? Do we just think that we're going to wake up one morning and somehow all is going to be perfect in the world? It just happened? No. Then why don't you bring them before God? Once again, it's one of those other things that, that makes no sense. Most of you know where I stand politically. I'm not sh a shy person on any subject matter for that matter. I think our cities, I think our countries, our, country, our states, our entire country for many years has been fiscally and morally going downhill. It is swirling in the toilet. And I think most of you would agree with me. And therefore, with this belief, I do pray for our leaders. I pray for their salvation. I pray for wisdom. I pray that God would change their hearts. I pray for some of them that God would enlighten them to literally know the difference between truth and a lie. Because sometimes it's so obvious, like, are you kidding? What does that have to do with politics? So you pray for these people. Too many times I believe that good Christians today think that we're going to change our country by, by protesting or by picketing something. Or maybe kicking somebody out of office. I'm not saying you're wrong in, in having these kinds of feelings. I get it. But if Christians spent the same amount of time praying for those instead of picketing someone, we would probably have a greater impact. One person at a time. You're going to save the country one person at a time. The key to changing this nation is the salvation of sinners. It's not being on the right side of your politics. It's not agreeing with you on what to do with wars or educational money or whatever. It's the salvation, the life-changing effect of Jesus Christ in the heart of man. And that includes our politicians doesn't it? And that calls for faithful prayer. It does. Now to prove that we should pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, by the way, this isn't just because he's your favorite or what have you, no matter how much you dislike these people, you know who was in power when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy? And he said, pray for your leaders, pray for those. You know who was in power his name was Nero. Many of you have heard of Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero was an outright monster. Nero was the Hamas of his day. Him and others hated Christians. Him and others made up lies about Christians just, just so the people would believe it and then they can turn around and disregard them as enemies of society. Nero was a control freak. He was always afraid that someone 
would take his office. He didn't like opposition. He killed his stepbrother. He killed his own mother because he wanted the power and he was afraid. During the Great Fire, as you guys know, Rome, 16, uh, 64 A.D., Nero himself set the place on fire because he wanted to rebuild it. He wanted to be known as this great builder, this great leader, right? So he set the place on fire, killing thousands of people. And what did he do? He turned around, he blamed Christians for them and made them the scapegoats. And now everybody hates the Christians because how dare they? They literally started fire to Rome. So what do they do? They turn around and they start killing Christians. Some of them were even crucified. Others were lit, were put as a popsicle sick, stuck in the ground, and they were made to light the gardens at night of Nero. They would burn people at the stake, Christians, to light his garden, all for a lie. And what does Paul say? Pray for this guy. If Hitler was alive, would you pray for Hitler? Right? There's more to say, but the point has been made, I believe, that whoever is the king, the president, whoever are your leaders, no matter how horrible, no matter how, how pagan you might think they are, it's imperative that we pray for them. Because, you know, honestly... I think in my own life, but um, I was no different than they were before I came to faith in Christ. I was a liar. I was a thief. I was everything out there that you can, you can have. Somebody prayed for me. My mother prayed for me for 20 years. God bless all the moms <laughs> who pray for their kids. Notice the second half, verse 2, and we'll close with this. Pray for those in authority, the kings, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. How will this happen? How can this happen if our leaders are never prayed for? Everybody will say, well, yeah, I'd love to live a peaceful, quiet, godly life. Well, put it in context, folks. He says it's due to prayer. It's due to prayer. Bad rulers, as you all know, can produce much evil. Much. Good rulers can do great things. If we can have an effect of some sort, we don't even know on the outcome, who are we to say no? Who are we to desire prayer from others, ask prayer from others, but we won't pray for somebody else? Well, that's a little hypocritical, isn't it? Well, I'm better than they are. Well, nobody would say that, but that's the reason. I encourage you, I challenge you today to not just begin this new year with a focus on prayer, but make today the beginning of the rest of your life. Your prayer life is not bound up by a calendar. Tomorrow will just be another day. It will be no different than any other day. Be people of prayer. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your friends. Pray for your enemies.
come before God in all these ways. As much as you, we talk about the Word of God and how important the Word of God is, we need to speak back to God. We need to communicate with God. We need to have that kind of relationship with God. It comes through prayer. You can pray six, seven, eight times a day. I do. It may be for five minutes at one time. It may be for 30 seconds at another. I mean, it all all depends where I'm at, what's going on, what I see. We can always come before God. Driving is a great time to pray, too. Like I said, it's going to take me 20 minutes to get there. Okay. Pray for, the, pray for the people at the church. Pray for uh, the, the sanctification of every life in this church. Pray for the physical struggles of a good friend. Pray for your leaders. There's always people to pray for. Let's do that right now. Father, we thank you that you have given us this ability to pray, to come to you and you alone, nobody else, to pray. Lord, we are grateful for all you've given to us already. We thank you for everything we have. We are nothing without you. We are dead in our sins. We are evil. We are corrupt. There's nothing that we can be more thankful to than our salvation. But Lord, we thank you for all we have. Remind us daily of of how you have blessed us. We don't have to be filthy rich to be blessed. Lord, remind us of that. Remind us that it all comes from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, challenge every person in this room to say, you know what, I, I am weak in my prayer. I talk about it. I'll answer yes to the question, but I don't do it. Convict us of this. Lord, it doesn't mean we sit for three hours and pray, but we have to keep a constant uh, connection to you. We start in the morning and we end at night and we pray anytime and every time in between. There's always something to pray about. Lord, show us this and give us this direction that we as your church would be people of prayer. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.